this decision-making system that doesn't have to fully agree with itself in order to still move forward in the direction it wants to go. So it has the ability to experiment with one of its arms and play with something. So in most governments, as you have like this CEO, I think you need to think about the future might have multiple CEOs and have this ability to go experiment and then there's this collective vote or whatever it might be decision. We think of ourselves as very binary, black and white kind of individuals, but we come from nature, we are nature. If there was no governments and our minds were wiped and we were dropped on a new planet and we had to restart from tomorrow, things would just happen. Like in community, we'd see that someone was building a shelter and we'd just go over and we'd help them. We wouldn't have like this need or desire or thing or what am I getting or what are you getting? Like some of that stuff would kind of fall away and our conditioning is so deep. Without a mind wipe, it's going to have to be these interesting games where people can co-own and co-share and co-be responsible for things. And I think responsibility is the most important part here is, is like these things will never work if everyone just wants to jump on for a free ride. The way it works is by actively being responsible and taking ownership over a portion of the business or opportunity you're engaging in. It's balancing self-interest with being responsible for those around you. And that balancing act is something that's going to have ongoing exploration for everyone. What's interesting to sort of dig into to find that out for yourself, do one thing purely out of self-interest and do one thing purely out of just absolute give and actually see and observe and become more self-aware as to the different polarities within inside yourself. Big things that can be small things just to experiment with, but just kind of notice what you notice about yourself. Like there's lots to learn by playing these polarities. Welcome to the Awakening Entrepreneur Podcast. This show is for entrepreneurs. They have chosen to define their life beyond the material. They have followed their soul on a hero's journey towards the mystery of the spiritual. I'm your host, Garrett Newman. Each episode will be learning from awakened entrepreneurs and spiritual thought leaders. They have broken through the mold of being ordinary to extraordinary, challenging our paradigm, shining lights to the dark, giving hope when there is doubt. The moment of truth is upon us. It is time to transcend our world from fear to love. Are you ready? Let's go. Welcome to this week Awakening Entrepreneur Podcast. Today we got a dear friend of mine, Mr. Roscoe Patterson. When I first found out about him, he's this legend in the cryptocurrency world. And I can be pretty geeky at times, but blockchain was just like over my head in terms of how it worked. And Roscoe, everyone turned to him as the expert. And he happened to be the founder of Heart Center Money Makers a movement giving us the opportunity to heal our relationship with money so we can use it to heal the world. I think I fear currency is just a time for a dramatic change, but we'll go into that a bit later. And Roscoe, he's a authority in this industry and not just crypto, but blockchain as well. Having spoken to tens of thousands of business entrepreneurs, CEOs around the world and highly sought after. He's very much about conscious entrepreneurship, 
very awakened soul. Like he doesn't talk a lot about the spirituality stuff, but he's very deep and have years of experience of going down this rabbit hole. And um, Roscoe these days he spent his time with his loving wife and his son in Australia and Vietnam and traveling, speaking all over the world and sharing his philosophy on life and human performance and business and, and leadership practice as well. I'm excited to really get to know him from a spiritual level and just truly get to know this soul. So welcome, Roscoe. Thanks so much for having me on, Gary. It's going to be a good chat. I can sense it already. Brother, so... Do you regard you had a pretty ordinary upbringing or do you have a spiritual background, your family background? What was growing up like? I definitely had like a deep longing to get to know myself, the world and, and everything beyond that too from day dot. I have this entrepreneurial spirit from day one. I always wanted to be able to help people in some way, shape or form. And also I had this, you know, kind of curiosity around what the pursuit of spirituality was and I grew up in a you know like I went to a Christian school I went to a Catholic school and an Anglican school in my schooling so there was kind of those values but my family was fairly agnostic like there wasn't a super religious sort of like home base and yeah so I mean I, I didn't have a super spiritual background but I also definitely uh, went on some super spiritual uh, pursuits at different times. I remember, uh, you know, in my early years, this is not something I normally share. Let's just get straight into it. Um, <laughs> in my early years, I went to like a fairly Pentecostal church in my early teens. And that was quite the experience. I think I went for the girls and then I ended up buying into a deep level of the conversation and then uh, also ejecting later at a later point and sort of redefining what uh, my own sort of, I guess, spiritual pursuits are. And yeah, in all of this, I found that there's kind of like extremes when it comes to um, spirituality for anyone, you know, I found that there's, there's kind of like these polarities that people need to dance in and, and some of them are steady polarities and very almost boring and patient in the spectrum. And then there's these other volatile, you know, more extreme sort of experiences people can have on, on a spectrum, you know, when it comes to finding and finding out who they are. So brother, from what I know of you, you've been entrepreneur spirit, like lived in your, your blood, like early on, and you've had numerous ventures that you got into. And I guess whether you call it achiever or hustler, was that pretty much like the drive for a long time? And then one day something happened that trigger you to look deeper beyond just material wealth and success? If I'm really honest and open, I think the pursuit was two-sided for me. There was this benevolent side, which was this side of trying to help people, wanting to do cool things, innovating, thinking through ideas, really enjoying the creative side of my own mind and others around me and engaging from that perspective. Uh, but then there was some sort of deep you know, uh, not malevolent, but some deeper desire to kind of try and get more or earn more and fill this void that was like basically a black hole, which you can't fill a black hole. So, you know, if, I, if I'm really self-aware and honest, you know, a part of me wanted to do it because it was fun and enjoyable. And another part of me wanted to do it because I was trying to like, you know, get more and fill this unfillable void. It's kind of something that I think if someone's truly honest, they've got both parts. Wow, I think like you've encapsulated really well that innate in the human DNA or the way that we've been constructed, we care about people, whether it's a stranger just fell on the street and we want to help them. As long as it's not too overwhelming, that we feel like we're sacrificing ourselves too much. But 
that's just, or even you look at firemen and policemen, a lot of them, they sacrifice and running to buy to save people and soldiers and so on and so forth. And mothers does it as well, like sacrificing their time and well-being, always putting their kids and their family like in front of themselves. But on the other hand, we got the desire. I don't know what it was like in the caveman age and the stone age, but I do know that since like I'm young, I recognize that my desire for material things and the people around me is wanting more material wealth and not just material wealth as well, but more friends and more accolades and titles and having certain dot, 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 like behind your name is, and all these things are, I wouldn't say that it's part of when we first came to this lifetime, like when we first born as a baby, we have that desire, but helping people, I believe that we have that, but I think it's, if I'm guessing, it's more the conditioning that the belief system from society, what we should have and shouldn't have, that probably play a, a bigger role in indoctrinating to our belief system that, hey, these things that you should pursue, that will make you whole. And you're right, it's, it's an endless black hole. <laughs> yeah, if uh, removalists were trying to give you a quote on moving everything inside of that black hole, I don't think they'd be able to price the job. Um, yeah. <laughs> it's just like, there's, there's quite an endless part of us too. Like this void is an endless part and it can be uh, creation or destruction. So it's quite an interesting sort of, I guess, shadow of yourself to be really aware of and, and define and you can create from that place, but you can also destroy from it. So you need to be careful, you know, when you mm. become really familiar with your own shadow. And um, I really like Jordan Peterson's sort of conversation around this, which is getting really clear on the monster within you and sharpening the edge of that and not using it, like having the self-control not to use it, but also at the same time, you know, sharpening the edge and really becoming very clear on where your like line is, like where your power edge is. And I feel like people talk about in the world of business or in spirituality of like pursuing your edge. And I think what they quite often metaphorically think is, is that that's going to find your edge out there somewhere. But actually, I think it's about sharpening that edge internally of that sword and being able to balance on the edge without having to like sort of, you know, use the wrong side of the sword kind of thing. Like the restraint is actually also an edge for people. Can you expand on what you define as the edge? Yeah, so I haven't actually ever spoken these thoughts out loud. They've been an internal dialogue. So let's see how this goes. Love it. <laughs> the best. So I think for the most part, it's, you know, when we acknowledge ourselves as a whole human being, we have positive and negative traits, you know, and two sides of the same sword, let's put it in that analogy. And the edge is kind of where they meet. You know, like the force of you in the world that can have the most strength is it's kind of when you're balanced right between the two. And that's where you cut through is when you can come across as very balanced and, and level, but simultaneously being aware of both sides in their wholeness to be able to cut through whatever the sort of situation is you're trying to, you know, pursue in life or be present with. Yeah. Mm. So if we got sucked in and just, Hey, let's just pursue money for the sake of money and accumulate stuff, tangible and non-tangible. Then that will lead you to a path of never getting fulfilled. But at the same time, if you just say, oh, I just want to help people. I don't care about any of this stuff. It's probably is not, I guess, in my interpretation, it's not what we came here to. Like we came here to also experience like the mature worlds and things and friends. And because a lot of these things also bring up certain emotions for us to experience as well. Right. So by being on the edge, it's kind of like having a beating in, in both sides to fully experience the human experience. 
Yeah. And I think either end, of, either end of that is kind of, you know, it's just, it's, it's ends of a polarity and sure we go too far one way sometimes and too far the other way. And that, that may help us just kind of identify more with more of ourselves, but coming yeah. back and like kind of holding that edge in the middle is where I find the most activation of who you truly are. Yeah. Has there been um, events in your life that has really triggered you to go, wow, like, dude, like what is life about? Like, I thought it's like this, but now it's like, what the hell? Like, why? Why am I here? <laughs> yeah, every Tuesday at 9 a.m. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Like, I'm such a rapid growth human, and I, and I know that there's a fair few listeners, obviously, on the show that sort of fit into that bucket as well. You know, when I try and contemplate my defining moment story or that moment where my life switched around, there's, there's actually quite a few in different areas of my life. And I really do learn a lot from direct experience. Like for me, you know, having direct experience, whether it's in relationships or business or money or whatever it might be, it, you know, you can have that life-changing moment. And I've had that in so many different domains of life. I think if I was to kind of isolate one that I think is useful... I feel as though for me, it's probably been this self-observation or this moment of realizing the pursuit versus attract kind of dichotomy within myself at different points in time. And it may have been when I've made money, lost money, but I've kind of, you know, like when I was younger, I had this moment that, you know, I thought was my defining moment for a long time and it still impacts me. It's still an interesting uh, story for sure. But when I was younger, I grew up with parents who, you know, they did okay. They did reasonably well for themselves. And I went to purchase some property when I was in my early, early 20s. And I had the ability to purchase quite a number of properties because on paper, I'd earned a little bit of money for some time, which I hadn't really earned. You know, it was, you know, when you have one of the really nice legal ways about the tax system is, is that if you've got kids you can put a certain amount of income through their name. So I'd been earning money on paper for a bunch of years that I hadn't earned. So when I went to get a bank loan for a house, the bank was like, how many houses would you like, sir? It was a little different to probably most people's experience. And what I did is I tried to satiate that need to fill that void that we spoke about before. So I'm like, I don't want one, I want another one, I want another one. I want to like, I want to crack this game of property. And, and 2008 came along and I got tripped up and, decided that the smartest decision for my life and for the future of the people that I cared about was to go bankrupt because, you know, a version of my life where I would have had to spend 15 years paying for that when the bank literally was not out of pocket because we both know the way that in which they create loans for the fractional reserve banking system. It wasn't like I was cheating them out of the money. So I decided to do the bankruptcy path. And I kind of thought that the lesson in that moment was that the lesson was that I didn't have enough cash flow on these properties because they were capital gains strategies. So I took like the whole lesson and meaning away as meaning not enough cash flow. So then I did this like opposite end of the polarity and I'm like, all right, let's go get cash flow. And then I was like, so kind of what I'm pointing out here is, is like, as I've aged and I'm now uh, 36, so many years on, like 15 years later, I'm now noticing that we try to play these games that try to get us to a certain destination within a certain period of time. And we can like go from one end of the polarity to the other real quick. And as you get older and wiser, of course, the biggest realization you can have is that there's a midpoint. And on a sliding scale, 
it may not be perfectly in the middle. It might be, you know, you're a more risk advantageous kind of person. So you like to take a little bit more risk, but it's about balancing what are those steady games you're playing versus those volatile games and, and how do you blend the two so that you feel good. You're not swinging as a pendulum from one end of the spectrum to the other and just like really coming into that center, into that edge that I was talking about earlier is like finding that point at which you're sharpest without kind of, I guess, giving up exploration in yourself and who you are, but also you know, giving over to a lot of practice and routine that might be really good for you, you know, um, at a personal level. There's this, uh, you know, this compound interest is like one of the eighth wonders of the world's according to Albert Einstein, right? And compound interest isn't just relative to money. It's relative to your whole life. Like people like myself and you and probably most of the listeners, Gary, understand like what a morning routine can do or something like a morning routine or some sort of a practice like meditation they understand that the compounding effects of that over time shape and can redirect your entire reality and that to me is important but then also so is this other notion and um, a lady by the name of victoria redbard first told me the sentence which is uh, radical discontinuity meaning we need to have vastly different experiences so that we can continue to explore who we are and see the different edges of who we are as a human. So being full routine and being like this robot is like not the destination either. You've got to have like at the other end, you're going to have, you know, new experiences, new adventures, new explorations, you know, in many different ways. So I don't know where I exactly I'm at on my little mini diatribe right now, <laughs> but I think I answered your question. And <laughs> it's perfect. So what do you feel life is about? Not sure I have an answer for this. It's, you know, something that I think at any given moment, it's about whatever the particular sort of micro journey you're on within your life is about, you know, like if I was to, you know, go back to that time where I went bankrupt, uh, for me, it was that micro journey was about, you know, me realizing that I'm not unbreakable, you know, but it also simultaneously was a good lesson in how I can be unstoppable, like over a longer time horizon. So I think life is like constantly this learning experience that we have. It's going to be a different learning experience depending on where you're at in your life. I don't know if that's the point of it, but it definitely seems like the entertainment programming that seems to happen in life (laughs) what what would you feel is the the most important life lessons that you could pass pass on to your son apart from uh, eating healthy like like hey like do this and that but like what are the 36 years now i think for me it's probably like i mean i heard this question like on the um tim ferris podcast for example which is you know like if you could leave a billboard for the earth and your kids and everyone, what would the message be kind of thing in like one sentence. And for me, I've thought about that quite a bit and I don't know if we've got the sentence perfect, but the idea for me is, is that you can't have enough perspective. There's no such thing as having enough perspective. You can always gain more perspective. And I think that for me, that's about empathy. It's about understanding. It's about, you know, transcendence of our ego. It's about embodiment of our ego. It's about like all sorts of things. But for me, it's like, if we look at life as this like cataclysmic, beautiful kaleidoscope of colors, you know, you can't get enough perspective. You can't see it from enough different angles. It's really interesting to kind of like go through it and sort of explore it all 
you can't get enough of perspective. How, how would you recommend one would pursue an expanded perspective? Um, it can be as simple as like this idea of radical discontinuity. So, for example, if you know you're like a bloke and you like football and you like VB and you know you like going pub with your mates and all this sort of stuff, an idea of radical discontinuity for that person, that archetype might be for them to go and like go to an art class. You know, it's this like you can do it simply like that, right? Or you can go to um, you can use tools like psychedelics, which, you know, they're probably um, something that some people go through for a season in their life. Some people get stuck there. There's all sorts of different perspective tools. I mean, there's, you know, great different therapies out there, all sorts of therapies that are just amazing. Um, there's incredible podcasts, you know, like even just consuming different perspectives like this auditorily. There's so many different ways. But one thing I would say is, is the point of getting more perspective one of the points is to have more self-awareness so if you're trying to like achieve something in who you're becoming then like just give some consideration as to what are the required traits for that you know if i was this bloke that loved vb and the footy and going to the pub with these mates that i sort of described before and i wanted to become say a had a change or a vision or something a destination i wanted to go to and i wanted to become like a say, a graphic designer from, you know, this, I don't know, whoever this person was, right? You would have to look at the skills or traits of who you are in that moment and the skills or traits of where you want to go and then figure out what experiences are required in order to get you there. Not Notice I didn't say skills or certificates or, you know, what experiences are going to make you that person or take you towards where you want to go, you know? And experience, I think, it really helps people to grab perspective much quicker than like a degree, you know, like much quicker than a course or a thing, you know, unless the course, of course, has experiences in it, which some do. Well, it's, it's interesting that I guess in my own personal awakening journey in the last two and a half years, like I've done the things that you just talked about. It wasn't by choice, radical discontinuity. Like I, there's so many of them. Like we started homeschooling out of nowhere. Like I started gardening out of nowhere. I, I don't like gardening in the past. I started camping like last weekend and, and like never yeah. camped in my whole life. And all of this just called upon me. Like I was late to this podcast. I was mountain biking with my kids and never mountain biked my whole life before. All yeah. of these new things is kind of like, it's just, yeah, what do you call it? Forced or I was led to it. And at times it still doesn't make sense. Like I don't enjoy spraying the aphids off my kale. It's, <laughs> pretty annoying is spending like not just one minute like five minutes ten minutes and you wash and wash and wash and they're still there it's like day after day is i googled in so many of the issues so it's not something that logically i could find that hey this is so enjoyable apart from that hey when you get rid of the stuff that's dopamine that's been released because you feel like you're making progress and plant medicine the same thing as well psychedelics yeah just got led to it but one thing that I guess as an archetype, you're pretty tech-savvy person, entrepreneur. And from what I know of the tech world, especially the younger generation, when I say younger, like maybe like 20 to 50s, the Silicon Valley people, Burning Man, why do you think that the tech world is kind of at the forefront of exploring ethnogenics, psychedelics, plant medicine, in whether it's just for their personal spiritual growth or for utilizing it? to enhance the output that the work in the business 
Yeah, I mean, I think people are drawn there for all sorts of different reasons. If I was to surmise, like, from a macro level, why I think Silicon Valley and, you know, the technocracy kind of folks drawn towards it, it's because, you know, they're definitely inherently knowledge seekers. Like, they are always looking to understand and comprehend as much as they can. They're very, one of the beautiful things about Silicon Valley is their desire to understand is paramount and it's not necessarily only from an empathetic way so like some people have a desire to understand so that they can have different self-interested kind of games some people have a desire to understand for empathetic reasons and i hope that more people can embody deep empathy however their desire to understand is just cultural it's ingrained it's a the curiosity has been taught mechanistically in society and culture there on the ground. Like I've spent a fair bit of time there now. And, you know, it's just, it's a different expectation. When you go to a party in Silicon Valley, it's expected that you would have a wide variety of deep understanding of different topics to be able to engage in the social setting there. That doesn't exist, you know, in all areas. It's very different cultures in in very different domains. Yeah, it's uh, knowledge. The, the hunt for knowledge is why I think they explore these ideas like Burning Man. And, um, and Burning Man's an interesting one because it kind of is quite similar to this, this movement that's happening right now, which is these different explorations of leadership and organizational structures. Like there's these things like the pursuits of holacracy, which is like a flat organizational chart, you know, where like everyone's kind of in charge. Then there's these things like decentralized autonomous organizations that we're seeing, especially in cryptocurrency, we're seeing a real wave of them coming through right now. This idea that multiple business owners can engage like almost like a hive mind. This is why Silicon Valley is really drawn to this because when you work cooperatively with a whole bunch of people, you actually learn more than if you try and work in your little bunker on your own. Right, working and coordinating with other people actually enables you to gain more insights and perspective and knowledge of what is happening in the world around you for a whole range of different people. And there's a lot of information in there that uh, is critical for you to be able to expand your awareness if that's the aim, right? So, yeah, I think there's always going to be that explosion. But that explosion I have started to notice moving outside of like Silicon Valley, for example, the culture is has feet and wings and legs and you know a whole bunch of people have found themselves during COVID stuck outside of San Fran for whatever reason and instantly all the meetings went on to Zoom and Skype and whatnot and you can definitely see an expansion of these circles beyond the concentration that they had held for some time. Yeah, I've never been to to Burning Man and really spent time in Silicon Valley as well. I'm fascinated by like what is the inspiration behind Burning Man? Like what is that festival about? And what is it? Obviously, that's marketing, general marketing on they this is about this art and all this other stuff. But what do you believe is truly about? And I'm also curious on some of the stories I've heard about people like micro dosing and, and using um the ethnogenics as a form of tapping into like more perspective to get ideas to solve challenges that the business is facing. Yeah. So let me split these into two parts. So the, I actually haven't been to Burning Man either. Like literally almost every friend I have has been to Burning Man. So I feel like I've been and I've never been. 
I've been to a great festival in Southeast Asia called Wonder Fruit, which is kind of known as the Burning Man of the East, and that was a delightful experience. I think the what is it called again? Wonder Fruit. It's in Thailand. Where um, is it? I uh, I can't remember the name of the town right now off the top of my head, but it's in Thailand. It's an hour and a half out of Bangkok. The really intriguing inception reason, or my understanding of the inception of Burning Man, was really an exploration in redesigning communities and connection and what that looks like and feels like for people and taking away the rules. Like I, I believe the the Burning Man, literally the the fire that they do of the stick figure, you know, made out of timber at the festival, signifies to sort of let go of all those cultural conditionings and knowledge and, and reimagine who it is that we are and how we can integrate and connect. So I think that's really interesting. The second part that you're talking about there with um, psychedelics and specifically microdosing uh, to gain new perspectives is really interesting. I have experimented with microdosing psilocybin mushrooms before and specifically there's a pulse damage regime on this where you have a little bit of uh, niacin lion's mane and a very small microdose of psilocybin mushrooms and the niacin and lion's mane actually behave in a way where they take away some of the psychedelic experience so the goal is to have it almost like a supplement with almost no psychedelic properties but as a supplement for kind of cognition and um in my personal experimentation with that, I found it very useful to just open up my ways of thinking. I did find that, you know, like with any experimentation of something like a psychedelic, it's a lot, you know, like the experience can be quite deep and profound. And the goal, I think, is to balance out, is to not get trapped in that being where you need to be either. The design of these, these etheogens is psychedelics is to help you wake up. It's not designed as a no dose so you can stay awake. Do you know what I mean? Like that's the design of them. That was yeah. quite a good little metaphor. I felt like I liked that. <laughs> I was like, because some people kind of get hooked on this stuff, right? As like the, it is the thing then, you know, and that's not the point of it at all. I don't think that that was ever the point of, you know, these wise old medicine and women discovering this beautiful technology. I don't think that was ever their intent that it would be the IV drip that stays in people's arms to keep them going either, you know, like it's about waking them up to find out who they are to go back into the world. Yeah, I, when you say wake up and, and find out who they are, like these are the things that I'm trying to figure out. Because <laughs> you also said no dose. I remember in high school or university, it's like no dose, let's, let's crank it and, and see what happens. But for whatever reason, like my body is immune to caffeine and no dose and some of these things. And, <laughs> and on, on the extreme, I did all my studies in bed because I've got something called necrolepsy. I just fall asleep whenever, especially when I open the book. But when I say asleep, but when you're sleeping, you go into the dream world and the dream world is another portal. And I've gone through tests to, to prove that I've got this condition. It would get me uh, like eight hours on the bed with like 50 wires plugged in. Yeah, like sleep and, study. Um, yes, sleep study. And yeah. the next day after fully rested and deep sleep, they'll say, well, I'll give you half an hour to fall asleep and to see whether you can actually fall back to sleep. And practically on average, it takes around like four minutes for me to boom, conked out again. Like every half an hour, they wake you up and boom, I conked out again. Like even though I've got deep sleep. So the dream world, there's so much things that we can 
learning from them, reading the art or, or listening to the art of dreaming. But there's so many things about the dream world. Are we waking up? Is this a dream? And I think like in the Australian Aborigine, like this is the dream world. Like even though we, everything seems so real, but this is part of the dream as well. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, I think that that's a useful perspective. I think that it's an especially useful perspective when someone is too like uh, addicted to something or, or, you know, like especially when they're trying super hard and they need to let go of what's going on for them, you know, when they're just, you know, in constant pursuit and zero surrender. Yeah. Super interesting. So a lot of my questions that, that I ask my guest, it just comes through me. It's just random. I trust that it's part of the divine plan and guided intuition that, so the next question is kind of random. So we have the industrial age and you talked about like Silicon Valley is this kind of the forefront of accumulating information as part of the information age as well. What do you think the next phase is going to be? What is the next age? What is the next big shift? It's so hard to predict this and predict it with any level of accuracy. You know, like I'm across technology. I've got, you know, a mediocre understanding of things like, you know, AI and robotics. And I have a deeper knowledge, you know, when it comes to blockchain technologies and user experiences. And I think that information is still very much going to be accumulated. I don't know. Like, I don't actually have a clear prediction on this. I definitely see a constant reshuffling of power. There's been a massive centralization of power, like the biggest one in the history of mankind to this point. You know, like we've had hundreds of years of super powers becoming more super. And at any time in history, this has happened before, whether it was the Roman Empire or whatever it might have been, it gets overturned. There's a destabilization process that we go through. And I think that that'll, that'll happen again. I don't think, I think we might see in our lifetime America not being the superpower. You know, who will it be? Will it be China or India or who will it be? I don't know. Um, Australia. Well, I mean, it's probably not going to be Australia. I'd like it to be Australia. Um, (laughs) What I've noticed though, like in my studies of history is, is typically it ends up being wherever innovation is most allowed. Like we've seen these thriving metropolises come out of innovation being greenlit. And like, for example, the States became the superpower from the United Kingdom, like from they overtook England, right? And specifically, one of the things they did right around the time of doing this, and they did a whole bunch of things, and this isn't the most accurate account of history ever, but one of the things I noticed they did was they really worked on, you know, allowing the railroad and pushing forward with the automobile. The same time when United Kingdom was outlawing the automobile, you literally had the red flag rule. You had to have an engineer sitting beside you when you're operating a vehicle and a man out on foot in front of the car with a red flag saying, sorry, there's this dangerous metal contraption coming your way. And so stifling innovation is how you end your superiority And we're seeing that right now with the US, like they're stifling innovation with their overexertion of laws around uh, cryptocurrencies and financial instruments and the internet, like the censorship levels of the internet. They're starting to bring in their stifling of innovation sort of, and and they call it democracy or regulating phase, you know, and they're regulating and they're regulating and they're regulating. But what happens is when you 
push back on innovation that hard, it sprouts up in new ways. So I really think that whatever happens next, the leading indicator will be where is it, like which industry or country or ideology is allowing the most innovation. And I think that's where we'll end up. And that's yet to be seen. Like I don't really know which one of the technology verticals it'll be, but I think that when we sort of have this convergence on the importance of innovation, that's when we'll get interesting. Like I'm seeing the states making some stupid mistakes right now, like this whole narrative around re-centralizing manufacturing to the United States. Like this is just like an archaic idea. Like why wouldn't they invest in something that takes us beyond the China problem as some of them might put it? Do you know what I mean? Like there's a lack, there's a brain drain when a society gets rich, there's a brain drain that happens because they get comfortable, you know? So the discomfort has to come back and brood in order to get them to do something uncomfortable in order to change it. And this is the whole, you know, towards pleasure, away from pain kind of stuff, right? At a basic level. And I think innovation follows that cycle, you know, where you look at which societies are being, you know, maybe oppressed on a global stage right now, maybe that's where innovation will pop up because there's there's challenges to overcome that'll be interesting, you know, like different parts of Africa or Southeast Asia or Southern America, like maybe there's some little boiling pot of cool stuff that pop out of there, who knows? Um, it's a long-winded answer, but the point is, is I don't know, but I'm very curious and I'm constantly sort of monitoring it. I think innovation is, is key to it. Yeah. So obviously you've been at the forefront of a lot of the disruption that is about to happen. Tell me about heart-centered money makers. How did that come about and what's that? I mean, this was like, I was literally in a coaching business, you know, teaching leaders, executives and people for many years before I sort of stepped into cryptocurrencies. So this was like 2016 and into the history back all the way to like 2010 kind of thing i actually have on my arm a tattoo that's made up of dollar signs that make the shape of a heart and so i got this tattoo i don't know 10 years ago or whatever it was and for me i noticed that money itself was this sort of reflective tool that could kind of show you who you were kind of like an amplifier and and what i mean by that is is like you know, you give someone a bunch of money that's never had money before and you'll see like all the action as an activities they do. Or you take money away suddenly from someone and you see how that, you know, makes them behave. Those moments kind of show you a little bit of who you are. I don't see it as good or bad. I don't see money as good or bad. I don't see it as, you know, a, a solve all for everyone. But I do see it as this like self-reflective tool and where people can see how they're relating to an inanimate object like money shows them more about themselves than maybe other things can. It literally, it's quite funny when you think about um, people's relationship with money, people will argue and fight over a, like the idea of money in like a relationship or in a business partnership or, you know, as a, a customer who left a one-star review because they didn't get what they wanted or whatever it was, right? People will argue about the money component of it. And it's actually always got nothing to do with the money component. It sometimes is, you know, it's the expectations weren't met or it's the whatever it might be. So I just noticed that it's a really cool tool. It's, it's painted up to be this evil thing. And I think that's because uh, it can be a bit of a sharp tool. It can bring people out pretty quickly. 
And so, um, you know, like a gun is a dangerous tool, um, money can be dangerous when wielded the wrong way, you know. So, yeah, that was kind of like this movement or this exploration I was going through. But I also found going down that track when I was trying to focus on, you know, um, deeply empathizing with only doing good with money in the world and whatnot that too has its edge you know you need to balance self-interest with empathy for everyone else you can't live at end either end of that spectrum and that movement attracted a lot of people that were just trying to live only at the empathizing and taking no self-responsibility so it was like this dichotomy you know that the movement of people who would be so kind as to want to help everyone couldn't get their own shit in order (laughs) like they just you know, like it's this interesting sort of landscape. So, um, yeah, it was a movement and, and a coaching practice that I had that sort of ended in 2016. And, you know, now, as you know, I focus um, really heavily on building Mercendo and Grow USD and um, focus on building like these new edge technology tools to, to help make money a little bit more uh, easy to, to use and grow and those kind of things. So, um yeah, can you tell me more about that? Because obviously you went through the, the personal bankruptcy, um, but yeah. you're also like through studying history, you've learned a lot about the fiat system and some of the limitations and bureaucracy, whatever you like to say about it. And there is a more innovative way of, uh, to move forward through blockchain and some of these things that you're working on. Yeah. Um, so one of the most interesting ideas that I kind of came across in this whole sort of understanding of blockchain was actually uh, human behavior when it comes to power and so there's this great book there's this great study of history and it's called the dictators handbook and it's not talking just about dictators but it's talking about all world leaders or all industry leaders you know whoever they might be in their own lives and it talks about that basically everyone goes through this process when they accumulate great wealth or power they slowly change as a human being because in the accumulation phase they have different behaviors to the acclimation phase as to the protection phase. Like they need to protect them, their wealth and hold their uh, wealth for their family and the people they care about. And they're doing it for all sorts of empathetic reasons, but this can make them appear to be uh, somewhat malevolent. Like right now, um, well, not right now, in 2018, Oxfam did a study and they found out that 26 people control uh, the same as uh, same amount of wealth as 50% of the poorest people on the planet. So, you know, like when you think about that, that's a real mass centralization of wealth. You know, 26 humans have the same as like billions of people. It's the scales get tipped drastically in, in that moment. And um, so the great notion that I found out through all of this is, is A, those 26 people aren't, you know, evil people. They're just trying to protect their families and whatever they need to do in order to maintain their wealth. And on a spectrum, you know, their behaviors that become who they became because of the way the rest of the world treats them and vice versa, you know, like the poorest people are uh, bad people for not, you know, having money or not understanding what it takes to get wealthy. Like there's this, you know, there's this, this comprehensive thing. Anyway, the point I'm getting to is, is that, the decentralization of power is an interesting idea. So the 26 people obviously have a lot of influence over the world because the money that they have allows them to like lobby governments and do all these sorts of things that maybe the other group of people don't have as much access to. So the idea of decentralization means we could distribute power more evenly. And so I don't think that money necessarily needs to be distributed 
differently. I think it might already be fairly distributed based on the gains that exist and the economics gains that exist to acquire it. What I think could be an interesting experiment would be really interesting to see is the further distribution of power. Like the very idea that we have things like presidents or prime ministers is a mass centralization of decision, right? But we now have technology where we could have 50 people in that role and they vote via blockchain technology so that they can't falsify their vote and have more people making decisions and pulling that out from being one person in particular. And that's where cryptocurrencies and blockchain, all those things become really interesting to me is this idea of like, hold on, let's have more collective responsibility. Let's have more collective civil engagement towards the things that matter rather than just blaming the singular people that we think are doing the wrong thing, you know, at a macro level, you know, like, and there's all sorts of ideas on this, like maybe you can have an app where you get rid of the government and people just vote, you know, like on on the different issues that they want to and don't want to. And it's quite an interesting sort of Mm. rabbit hole, but yeah. So I was fascinating with, with like the hierarchy of the organization structure and so in my workforce, like I'm more prefer like a flatter style that everyone is, is more equal. But I was fascinated with like a blockchain and what you described. Like, and I still don't uh, truly comprehend how does it work that, and, and this is even before blockchain, this is like like um, uh, computer programming that you got a community kind of like develop stuff, but there's no one that owns it. And somehow like the community just works seemingly like, cause I'm just the end user. It works seamlessly in the background of, I don't know, more than a hundred people or thousands of people just working together. How does that work? Yeah. So, I mean, we're seeing this sprout up in a bunch of different ways, right? We're seeing things like Uber and Airbnb and these different sort of sharing economy style experiments show up. Um, the future of something like an Uber, though, could be quite different. Like right now you have Uber where you have all of the drivers and the passengers are kind of like this mostly decentralized workforce and customer base. Um, but then you have this centralized ownership model where you have the big corporation. That type of business would be one where it would be very easy to distribute the ownership amongst the drivers and the customers. Like that would be something where it would be extremely easy to do that. Um, there's even absurd tech ideas that you could, uh, with driverless autonomous cars, that the car could actually be an owner inside of that DAO also and reap some of its profits and then go get mm-hmm. itself serviced and do all of these sorts of interesting notions. But I think co-ownership, co-responsibility. How would they work on the daily stuff like innovations and marketing? Like, Would they still somehow the committee of, of hundreds of thousands or open source people, the community somehow vote who's going to be employed and work on certain tasks? Yeah, so I have an interesting idea around this. It's drawn from inspiration in nature. So there's a creature in the ocean, which we all know, which is the octopus, right? And the octopus has eight legs. And actually what it has is through each of its legs, its brain is distributed. So an arm literally has... Uh, parts of the brain in the arm. It's actually a distributed brain. So the brain's not all in the octopus's head. It does have a large portion in its head, right? Um, But it doesn't have it all in its head. It has some of it in its arms. So what happens is when an octopus is kind of going along the ocean floor and it finds something, one of its tentacles might find something that's interesting, like a pen or whatever it is, right? And start playing with it. 
And the other arms might not be interested in it. The other arms might be interested in just keeping on going in the direction that they started out in. And this arm, like the octopus can almost stretch itself while one arm's still playing and curious with the thing it discovered. And the rest of the octopus is still moving in the direction it wants to move. So what you get in the brain of an octopus is this decision-making system that doesn't have to fully agree with itself in order to still move forward in the direction it wants to go. So it has the ability to experiment with one of its arms and play with something and introduce the idea to the rest of the arms and, and the octopus itself. And if the whole octopus likes it, it can take it on. But if it doesn't, then it can just keep on moving forward too. So I think what's required for this is in a government right now, in, in most governments is you have like this CEO, right? I think you need uh, to think about the future might have multiple CEOs and they have this ability to go experiment and then there's this collective, you know, vote or whatever it might be, decision that no, okay, we'll leave that experiment. Let's keep moving forward. There's other things to do. It's a really long way. To, it's a really different way to look at it. And I think the perspective is important to think about, you know, we think of ourselves as very binary, black and white kind of individuals, but we come from nature. We are nature. If there was no governments and our minds were wiped and were dropped on a new planet and you know like and we had to restart from tomorrow things would just happen like in community like we'd see that someone was building a shelter and we'd just go over and we'd help them we wouldn't have like this need or desire or thing or what am i getting or what are you getting like some of that stuff would kind of fall away and our conditioning is so so deep so without a mind wipe it's going to have to be these interesting games where people can co-own and co-share and co-be responsible for things. And I think responsibility is the most important part here is, is like these things will never work if everyone just wants to jump on for a free ride. The way it works is by actively being responsible and taking ownership over a portion of the business or opportunity you're engaging in, you know. I think it also jumps back to what you alluded early on is having a shift in the perspective or awareness or consciousness in how we see our responsibility, our role, on what we're supposed to do, our belief system, our value system. Yeah. Otherwise, if everyone is out for themselves, like this type of system is not going to work. I was just reading a book, um, Conscious Capitalism by co-CEO of Whole Foods. And it talks about different examples within the books that when you create a culture that is different to the norm of that is just for the shareholders and maximize profit, you look at like a whole ecosystem where you just talked about in nature that everything coexists. So all the stakeholders are just as important because you need to look after, they say that if the bees dies, the whole human species will get wiped out. It's the same thing that we have to look after the whole ecosystem, not just the shareholders. And that when you start to work like that, the innovations and people taking pride in the work and retention rates and a lot of the issues that we historically need to implement various strategies, get carrot and the stick type of strategies and rules to kind of like hold it in place. But when the culture is right, a lot of these things will automatically fall into place for the most part. Right, right. I think there's this, you know, it's balancing self-interest with like being responsible, you know, for those around you, you know, and that balancing act is something that's going to have ongoing exploration for everyone. What's interesting to sort of dig into to find that out for yourself, though, is, is to 
just literally like here's an experiment someone can do that in their own life and an experiment is is do one thing purely out of self-interest and do one thing purely out of just absolute give and just journal as you do both of them and and actually see and observe and become more self-aware as to the different polarities within inside yourself you know and these don't need to be you know big things that can be small things just to experiment with but just kind of notice what you notice about yourself like there's lots to learn by you know playing these polarities thank you there's so much um, wisdom out of that so i appreciate your time brother um before we wrap it up any final words of wisdom for people navigating this um, ever-changing landscape that we call the human life and, and especially with covid a lot of the major disruption is happening right now and the world is changing the elections if we know what it would happen like what are some of the words of wisdom that you want to share i think you know figuring out how to have some practices that head your life in unstoppable directions are important and every time you sort of like break down along the way or with who you are and what's going on for you um spend the time for integration i think a lot of people just race through life and if COVID's taught us anything, it's to stop and just kind of like reflect. And yeah, I think integration of who you are and what's going on for you is important. Sometimes you need to put down the podcasts and the things and stuff. And I feel safe saying this at the end of the episode, <laughs> but sometimes you need to like integrate, you know, spend some time sort of like just being okay with being who you are again. Yeah. And I find that at times as an entrepreneur, you always have to go and achieve and achieve, achieve. And during this uh, lockdown, it's just giving myself permission. Hey, it's okay to do gardening. <laughs> it's okay to spend half an hour spraying like some bugs <laughs> off a leaf. <laughs> and then there's still, uh, to find that there's still bugs remaining. Have you, have you interviewed an apron <laughs> expert yet, Gary? That's going to be coming up soon. <laughs> uh, oh, my God. The more that you know, the more that you realize that you don't know. Right, right. <laughs> uh, that's all I know. It's a great metaphor for life and business. Not just when you think that you're on your A game and I, you know it all. Life has a way of throwing a curveball to say, no, humble yourself, brother. Yeah. Like, yeah. <laughs> that's another lesson to learn. And as you say, another lesson to integrate yeah. into your journey moving forward. 100%. Thank you so much. Um, I appreciate you. And not just you being such a kind-hearted soul, but a lot of the sacrifices, not sacrifices, but just being bold, being bold to challenge the existing paradigm on how to make this world a better place in sometimes seemingly quite rigid and quite stuck on its ways. And it's not easy to break through, but you've got the tenacity, the intelligence, the empathy and the vision to um, really help us carve a path of a better future. Thank you, brother. I appreciate that, man. Thanks for having me on. It was uh, a good chat. We got to talk about all sorts of things I wouldn't normally open up about. So really appreciate you and your listeners. And thanks for having me on.